Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on uh, YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, of course, with video on YouTube. And uh, this week, we are continuing the series on Scientology's data series, which is L. Ron Hubbard's uh, take on logic and reason and how to do analysis of, uh, you know, non-ideal situations and working out how to make them ideal. Uh, there have been uh, earlier episodes on this, which you absolutely should watch or listen to. If you have not, I will uh, put those links in the description to this podcast below so that you can avail yourself of that information. This week, we are continuing on this by talking about uh, L. Ron Hubbard's Snow White program. It's rather infamous. And we'll go over the history of that and, and what that was all about. I am joined by Dr. Jeff Wassel, uh, military intelligence analyst extraordinaire, <laughs> and um, John P. Capitalist, uh, who has the uh, finance chops and background that I also love to hear uh, when he gives us his expertise on some of this. And uh, the three of us have been uh, discussing this data series and it's been uh, it's been an interesting, very very interesting and enlightening conversation as far as I'm concerned. I've certainly learned some things. What do you guys think? I certainly have. I mean, I've this, these deep dives. You just keep uncovering more lunacy, and it just is fascinating. The rabbit hole just widens. <laughs> well, sure. you know what what I what I found is you know initially my sort of catalyst to you know sort of uh, propose that we look at this was. Haha, look at all the stupid math skills that Hubbard's trying to teach people and thinking that it was really shallow. And, you know, over time, as we've as we've talked more about this and figured out what we want to talk about, you know, the fact is this is so central to the way that Scientology as an organization behaves. So trying to predict them uh, what they're going to do and how they're going to handle something and to uh, to do that, that's really key to being able to outrun and outgun them. In, in the sense of, you know, being able to uh, effectively, you know, take action to, uh, you know, to hem them in. And so, you know, this is actually incredibly important. And uh, and so I'm really, you know, glad that we can, you know, bring this to light and hopefully make it so that it's accessible to people, that people understand its importance, and that they use what they learn from this in their work uh, as activists criticizing Scientology. I think Perfect. to your yeah. point, JP, that it also reinforces just how locked in the mindset is of anybody that gets involved in Scientology for any considerable period of time. Because it, it's the data series is Hubbard's mentality writ large and also the way that the church trajectory over time has really – it hasn't evolved. I mean it's it's almost a static continuum if there's such a thing right it just stays the same over time and that's exactly I thought, right you know and, yeah. and looking at you know snow white i mean i've sat back and i've looked at it you know as a as an intelligence professional or a financial crimes guy sitting back and saying okay so here's this big caper but then you step back and look at it as a psychological construct 
And that's where it really gets interesting because you start looking at how confirmation bias plays into it and the incoherent actions of the, of the actors within it, um, the motivations that you know were put on paper, but yet were completely diametrical to what actually happened. So again, you know, it's just full of all these, you know, great paradoxes that you keep falling over when you try and look at Scientology with any rational thought. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, all right, the Snow White program. Uh, this was a uh, actually based on the data series, and that that's why I thought it lent itself so wonderfully to our discussion on this. We've discussed uh, the history of Scientology management, the development of the data series, and um, John P., you had uh, you guys also had uh, Hannah Whitfield contribute uh, a written article on this on your on your blog, and uh, so now it's sort of following a timeline of activity here because we're going to do even more on this into the future with David Miscavige, but for this show, uh, the Snow White program was uh, is not something you can easily find uh, around and about on the internet. But there is the first page of it has been transcribed out. This is a uh, this was issued as a guardian order. Now, the, now, just to explain a little bit about this, to 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 give some background, in the late 1960s and early 70s, L. Ron Hubbard appointed his wife Mary Sue Hubbard as the guardian. That was her job, as and she was uh, given charge of the guardian's office. And uh, that job entailed basically handling covert operations, legal operations, anything having to do with uh, external influences on the Church of Scientology and dealing with those influences um, with, through overt and covert means. They hired, this is back when they were hiring private, or first started, I should say, hiring private investigators, doing uh, what Hubbard referred to as noisy investigations, which was basically harassment and stalking of critics and, and former members. And uh, then, well, come forward to April 20th of April, 1973, L. Ron Hubbard does an evaluation using the data series, or at least the format of the data series, to issue an, a program to Mary Sue, which she, which she is then tasked with getting done, called Guardians Order 732. So there had already been 731 earlier Guardians Orders. We don't know, you know what all of those said necessarily, but this Snow White program launched a whole new direction for Scientology operations for the Guardians office. One thing I should mention is that Mary, it wasn't just Mary Sue at the top as the guardian, but she was given a whole organizational structure, which was sort of running parallel to the churches of Scientology and their staff members. These guardians office staff members were their own deal. They weren't Sea Org. They were, they were non-Sea Org, but they were uh, dedicated to and devoted to working for Mary Sue and working for this this uh, this op this sort of spy organization really. Uh, so the Snow White program says policy attack is necessary to an effective defense. Um, so the idea is, you know, you you throw out this sweeping, you know, generalization there, and yep. you know that sort of introduces confirmation bias right there. That this is a this is an axiom. This is the way life works. And then you can easily infer from that that the better the defense, 
must mean the more vigorous the attack. Right. So essentially, in some sense, this is an excuse to be an extremist right out of the starting gate. Well, the thing, too, yes. that, is that it's a presumption of legitimacy. And this is the other thing that you see all through the Guardian Order and just the behavior throughout Snow White. I mean, this was an extensive operation, is that there's this presumption of legitimacy that Scientology is entitled to the same rights and privileges as a nation state. If you look at the way Hubbard was thinking at the time, science, he, he looked at, uh, and this goes back to one of the posts we did over on uh, Reason Life that JP wrote on the you know, Hubbard's worldview. He looked at Scientology as a completely separate entity, not a religion, not a whatever, but, you know, this this nation state, this organization that was out for the quote unquote betterment of the world, but also behaved more so like a rogue state. If you look at the way that uh, its behavior has uh, demonstrated itself over time. So I'd like to make that point from the beginning right now, Chris, is that when I look at the discussion about Scientology in this context, in this time frame, contemporary to the way the rest of the world was operating 1973, it's just another rogue state amongst a bunch of other rogue states that were trying to establish their supremacy in a particular geopolitical realm. And all at the behest of, you know, LR, at the end of the day, it was all about Hubbard anyway, nothing to do with Scientology. It was about Hubbard, you know, his tax issues and his front companies and all this other stuff, which we'll get into. So here's, you know, the, the criminal enterprise operating under the guise of a legitimate nation state operating under the guise of a quote unquote religion. So it's, I, I would almost want to sort of step on that a little bit and take it a little bit higher, that he thought he was essentially superior to nation states, that he had the the right and the, you know, and, and he had the goods to come in and say, I think that you should let me run your country for you. The supranational organization, as it were, right? <laughs> yeah, and this was, you know, this was kind of, I mean, you know, if you look at some sort of space operatic style SF from the 40s and 50s, the notion of, you know, the UN world police coming in and being able to bitch slap any recalcitrant government that didn't come along with, that didn't essentially go along with, you know, truth, justice, and the American way, as it were. Oh, it's and, justice and mind control, one of the two. Yeah, and it's, and it's like, you know, so Hubbard clearly thought that he was actually, he wasn't a nation state. He was above all of them and entitled to do whatever he wanted to governments, which is just, uh, you know, kind of the, the mosquito thinking that it can totally bite the elephant in the ass and get it to do its bidding. Actually, that's a good point in the sense that uh, you know, nation states still operate within some framework of international law or rules and regulations that, you know, allow them to exist. I mean, that's the, the, the whole idea of international relations. Hubbard does not look at that at all. He, you know, has a disdain for WOG law and WOG law, you know, not even criminal and civil that extends to this to the way that the international norms work. So that's actually a very good point in that he's he's saying, you know, the heck with all that. I'm going to come in and show you the way I'll write your constitution. I, you know, and this is all subversion, but done under the guise of making it go right and or dis planetary dissemination, clearing the planet, whatever euphemism you want to you want to call for basically, you know, a, 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 a coup d'etat on, you know, the Apollo was a floating coup d'etat, right? Let me just pull up to your port and rearrange your geopolitical situation. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. As we've covered in the earlier episodes, that is exactly what Hubbard was doing. He started with trying to uh, 
do that down in uh, Rhodesia, right. and, which is now Zimbabwe, right? And he, uh, and he, he, he and, uh, flat out tried to go down there and take over a country. Then he did the same thing in Corfu mm -hmm. uh, in Greece, right? And he got kicked out of that place. I mean, he was not, he did not have benign intentions <laughs> towards yeah. these governments. And uh, and this is all a matter of record. This isn't a matter of well, I just I I I'm gonna, you know, project all of this into Hubbard's psyche. He said it. He said we're building a new world to hell with the old one. You know, he said that uh, Scientology was the most important thing in the universe. I mean, all that had been written by the time that he was doing all of this work, uh, sailing around the ocean blue avoiding the tax man and fraud charges in France and various other things that were there were there were legal actions being taken against Hubbard. So uh, so the Snow White program, getting back to that directly here, was an effort on Hubbard's part to try to deal with that. You know, what okay, what do I you know, we get we I get kicked out of Rhodesia, I get kicked out of Corfu, where we you know we're sailing between you know Madrid and Portugal, and and we don't really I can't go back to England, and the United States is hostile to us, you know. Well, why why are they so hostile to us? Now here's the thing about the data series: it's all about finding a why, finding why something is this way, and then dealing with it. Well, here's here's Hubbard's take on that, and this really does speak to his mindset, which you'd mentioned earlier. Uh, both of you guys uh, about this, and it's and it's an important point. Uh, Hubbard said that the situation he was trying to resolve is that countries were being denied, uh, you know, Hubbard and the Apollo and and uh, the OTC. He says the uh, which is the corporate company he set up. I think in Panama. Uh, yeah, it was a the Panama -based operations company. transport company or operations yeah. transport corporation OTC. Yeah, yeah, and that was, that was sort of the company that was taking money in and and they were using as an operational uh offshore corporation. For funding all this stuff right because they weren't and it's notable that they were doing that rather than using church of scientology of california which was the mother church corporation at this time that's not what they were funding you know sending money to and and using for finances they were using this otc operation and so he says that that they're that they're being denied access to these countries and whatnot, and he says that the that the statistics have been going down, uh, a gradual reduction of available countries occurring since 1967. Trend is danger, which means the line looks like this; it's going steep down. That's that's Hubbard's interpretation of of a danger condition. Yeah, and it's it's kind of it's kind of funny how this. Um... You know, it's kind of funny how this sort of understates the problem. So a gradual reduction of available countries, that sounds like it could be some boring report of oil inventories in, you know, certain refineries or something. You know, we're seeing a gradual drawdown of feedstock uh, chemicals of West Texas Intermediate in Houston, right? That's the sort of dry, boring crap that I read all day in research reports. And... Um, you know, what it is, is 100% of the time after Hubbard's been in a country for a while, he gets kicked out. 100% right. failure well, rate. Well, is that rather than curb his behavior, 
so that maybe he's accepted in more countries. Let's just ignore the obvious and say, well, you know, screw that. We're going to bulldog our way through. We're going to find some place, and if they're not going to give it to it, to hell with it. We're going to go in and we're going to, you know, create something that's going to allow us to completely invert that that uh, downward trend and you know into some. <laughs> utopic or utopia of acceptance right by whatever hook or crook well, and in this case crook <laughs> yeah well you know it's just like the whole the whole notion of and and i don't want to give away the punchline here but the whole notion of of this is you know when you start getting kicked out of countries that you know presumably would like a few tourist dollars and what starts happening pretty care uh, consistently you might want to look at how you as scientologists would say pulled it in and so apparently the concept of pulling it in is is operative for Scientologists, but not operative for Hubbard. Well, and also exactly. the Exactly. Moral... That, that, that is actually an important point, yeah. uh, JP. I actually want to comment on that because it is fundamental to destructive cults. It is a characteristic of them that the leaders can do no wrong. Mm, and, yes. and, and I mean do no wrong. As I think as we mentioned in an earlier episode, L. Ron Hubbard... I could not find one person who could tell me, and these are people who worked with him for years up close, like his messengers, who who could, who said that he he never apologized, never admitted he was wrong, never said, "Oh wow, I really got that one wrong." Not once. This was a guy who, uh, you know, you could just might as well call him Hubris Hubbard. You know, he just he just was not into being wrong ever so the entire yeah. thrust of this program and of all scientology policies even more importantly than the point i'm making here is that scientology as an organization and l ron hubbard as an individual are not the ones who are in the wrong ever so it's always directed outwards to other actors or sources of of trouble the other thing, I, to the point where, uh, you know, like like meeting like or Hubbard's hubris, it, at the time, you look at, you know, this 75 or actually, you know, the mid-70s in the Mediterranean, everywhere he went was pretty much run by a junta or some type of, of uh, military dictatorship, Portugal, Greece, Morocco. So, I mean, if these guys who are, were really nasty dudes, even though, you know, America, you know, was in bed with them, as FDR said, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch bitch right you know it's it's one of these things where they didn't see any value in this stuff let alone i mean he's saying well i've got mind control hey you guys are already a dictatorship how would you like to you know have yet one more set of tools that you can manipulate the political the social political institutions in your country that you're already doing by you know gunfire secret police and what have you and they're saying get the hell out of here we want nothing to do with you right so i mean at the well, end of the because day, they being <laughs> military and you know having engaged in coups in order to get into power absolutely they see their own i mean they recognize their say, own yeah. Hubbard comes along and goes oh yeah i'll help you guys out this will be wonderful <laughs> and they go i think i've heard this line before absolutely yeah so i'm glad you brought that point up actually jeff because it, it it speaks to a number of of hypocrisies on hubbard's part including that he said in earlier Scientology materials that he had the technology to be able to understand where anybody was coming from, the tone scale, predict and control human behavior. Right. I mean, he should have, you know, he claimed that he had all this technology and knowledge that he had developed and 
research he had done, including in the early 1950s, on, he said he had done research on criminals and on the criminal mind, and he understood how those guys worked. So he, he really felt like he was going to go in there and, and be the bee's knees and just give these guys, you know, everything that they, you know, that he would know how to present it to them and, and manipulate and control them. And, and, and in fact, one for one for one, he failed miserably every time. Well, yeah, and with all that knowledge, he still never got irony nor nuance. So, yeah, there you yeah. are, right? Anyway. Yeah. All right, well, let's uh, let's go ahead and take back, go back over this program. Um, so he says here that uh, as far as the data of this evaluation, it's pretty succinct. This is all, all laid out pretty much in summary form on one page. Usually the data of an evaluation goes on for a couple pages. But his simply says that uh, general operating records since 1967 studied with many uncovered incidents without foundation in fact. Um, each of these has had in common false reports. So he's basically saying that the data collection that they did uh, since 1967 shows that there's been a lot of false reports underlying why there's been trouble with these various countries. They're finding false information. Now, he's not necessarily totally wrong in that, but again, I'm, gonna, I'm glad we've already made this point about, about uh, how it's always everybody else that's at fault, because if he had done a really objective look at where and why those false reports existed, they would have a lot to do with the fact that Hubbard wasn't willing to talk or give the correct information to these guys. He was hiding. He was running. He wasn't, you know, in open communication with the United States or with Britain or France about his operations and activities. He was hiding on a boat. And, and think about this, you know, think about this for a second, you know, what you're just saying here. And, you know, what's the inevitable result of this, right? So you are some government official, perhaps some minor military attache in, you know, some port in the Mediterranean. And these guys show up in this shitty boat that's got rust all over it and they're dressed funny and they drink and they smoke and they chase women in your ports and they get in fights in bars and they're clearly lying when they tell you that they're some sort of study group and so it's this weird hippie thing and then some guy shows up and says I want to talk to the head of the military because I've got great mind control technology. And then you do about 10 minutes of digging. You call the U.S. Embassy and you talk to, you know, somebody there that you're, you know, that you're working with. Or you have your intelligence guys call the CIA guy, the, the station chief in the U.S. Embassy in your country. And in 10 minutes, you find out that this guy is A, a loon, B, that he was in military intelligence in World War II. And then you just think, it doesn't matter what this guy's up to. I just want the safest and the easiest thing instead of trying to figure out whether the guy is really legit and trying to figure out if this supposed mind control technology is, you know, really good. The safest thing to do is just dump the guy. Why take, why waste the time? You know, why just waste the time to try to figure out what's really going on here? Just get rid of the problem. He's on a boat. He'll go be somebody else's problem in three days. It's a really trivial that, you know, decision. It's the message not, traffic at the time was all about, you know, him, they were running drugs or guns or something, right? You know, so when you don't have information, you know, you fill in the blanks, right? So what's the obvious thing? Boat, loons, money. So we got guns, drugs, or people, right? <laughs> I mean, so, so it's just like, 
How hard is it to just, you know, at the bottom, just whip out the rubber stamp that says rejected? Yep. Yeah, exactly. You know, there, there's, it's not worth trying, you know, to any of these governments, it's not worth trying to launch some giant fact-finding thing to figure out if this guy's on the up-and-up or not. There's enough, like, hair on the back of your neck standing up things and you get in the first five minutes, you just say, I'm not doing this. I'm not going, you know, I'm not even going to bother. Just That's right. Gone. That's that and, precisely. And so, you know, Hubbard, of course, gets to the conspiracy angle, but the fact is it's an eminently rational process. I don't want to deal with that I'm having some, you know, as the... Uh, as the paranoid whack jobs today think, you know, I, that I'm having some weird false flag op run on me. I'm just, while the odds are low, I'm just not going to take the chance. Just throw them back on their boat and get them on their way. That's right. Exactly. And from Hubbard's point of view, they're like, well, he says the why for this, his why for this, and this is a little cryptic. I mean, he's, he's really writing in a very odd way. But he says the why is by spreading false reports, a cumulative file can be built in their own and other countries, which then tend to act on the file without the presence of the real scene data, which is factually good, but which is then ignored. So in other words, they're saying those meanies are believing their own evidence and they're not listening to me. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Hence a bunch of Portuguese rolling up to the boat and throwing rocks at it because they figure he's a CIA operative, right? Yeah, so exactly. again, And that's the locals, let alone what the government was doing, right? That's right. <laughs> so he and can't, Robert, he can't make always, the government happy. He can't make the locals happy. He can't make anybody happy, right? That's right. Yep. And, it, and he actually even, and to, and to reinforce what you just said, the secondary why, which is pretty unusual in an evaluation, says – the tendency or habit of police and immigration agencies to act secretly on record data without further advice, thus making a hidden third-party situation. So, you know, he takes this, he takes what you just said, JP, right? Of like, oh, you mean they actually believe what their files say and what their own people are talking about? And he makes it, he twists it into this like, oh, this tendency or habit they have to believe their records uh, you know how? Oh my God! How how strange and conspiratorial they are that they would that well, they would do that. Well, you know, it's it's. I I sort of read it similarly, but a little bit different. I I read this as, how dare they? They read their stuff in their files, and they don't come to me to clear up the misperceptions. Right. This is exactly like what Miscavige did. Um, Tony Ortega wrote about this a couple of months ago. Uh, or no, I, I don't think Tony wrote about it, but somebody posted a thing where Miscavige or Heber or one of the senior executives wrote to the FBI and said, would you please stop sending out all of this nasty stuff that paints us in a bad light in response to freedom of information requests? And would you please uh, take you know some brochures and when anybody asks for anything about us to counter the negative information, would you please hand them one of these brochures along with it? What? <laughs> what? What planet is this? Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's right. and and the so the idea that oh we should be allowed to have the last word on any negative information that you might have that I mean you talk about you know what I might you know these days be thought of as white privilege, like, right? Are you kidding? That's right. That's right. Sort of reminds me a little bit of uh, uh, 
what was it Trump was was trying to do with the uh, with the 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 files they got from Cohen's office? And he was like, oh, well, let me review them before you do so I can tell you what's client privilege and what's attorney client privilege and what's not. It's sort yeah. of like, wait a minute. What? What are you what are you talking about? <laughs> Redaction yeah, that is, is relevant. Just, <laughs> that is just not how this planet works, baby. Exactly. Yeah. So with so given this as the why, if you thought in this in this way of thinking, if this was how you were approaching the world and approaching this situation that, oh, the problem is that they've got all these false reports in these files and that's the problem. And that's what's setting up this 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 big problem between Scientology and the rest of the world. It's not what we're doing. It's it's that their files are messed up. He well, then and it says, oh, go ahead. Yeah, and it's it's not only are the files messed up, but that they're not interested in, quote, the truth. And mm -hmm. there's an implied arrogance there that only we in Scientology have the truth. Well, yeah. So that's why you have to ask us before you make any decisions. You know, not only are your files messed up, but since we have the truth, you know, we need to get the last word in. That's and we right. will help you make it more truthful. <laughs> well, and, and here's how, you know, L. Ron Hubbard's help. Uh, it exemplifies itself. So, ideal. So, the ideal scene, the thing Hubbard is trying to accomplish with this evaluation is the following All false and secret files of the nations of operating areas brought to view and legally expunged, and OTC, Apollo, the ship, and L. Ron Hubbard free to frequent all Western ports and nations without threat, and all required ports open and free. So, you know, give me the key to all the cities. That's what I want. And we're going to we're going to expunge these files of all this false information and thereby legally, legally nonetheless. Right? That's right. Legally expunged. <laughs> it, it did write that. That 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 was what well, was no, written. In I'm the... laughing because none of what he did was legal. <laughs> well, exactly. Now. <laughs> okay, now there's there's uh, to be completely objective and actually to, to, to put some information out here. Scientology actually did take a big advantage of freedom of information. Oh now. yeah, no, I know they did the FOA. I'm being facetious. The FOA. Yeah, no, thing. no, I know. I'm just letting the public know. I the, the the viewers know. Um, Scientology actually was a little, as an organization, was a little groundbreaking in terms of FOIA requests and and getting and pushing those through. They did try to get files in a legal manner, as well as what they did with their covert operations. They um, and they and they you know and they they did some good work in terms of pushing the FOIA laws forward. Uh, yeah, although, you know. although what they undoubtedly discovered was you know that they had known that there was enough investigative stuff that had gone on that was redacted because it was still you know so 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 that they would not they they knew that there was a they were not getting the good stuff with all these FOIA requests. Right. They were getting the stuff that had the same standards of public disclosure, whether it was a completed investigation or low level stuff. But they knew there was a lot more stuff in there because they knew that the FBI, for example, had talked to so and so and so and so and they didn't get any responsive documents. And right. they knew that that had to have been because there was active investigation. So when Hubbard says all false documents expunged well you know you can go fight for tooth and nail for you know due process to get the low level stuff perhaps perhaps you know um expunged but you're not going to get investigative files for current and ongoing work they're just not 
And right. so that's where, you know, this, this whole program is seating is sort of leading people. And I don't know whether it's intentional, you know, whether, whether Hubbard is cleverly wording this to push people towards the line or whether they were already fanatical enough to have gone over it anyway. But, you know, he's leading people to the fact that they're not getting everything and they got to get the, the good stuff. That's right. But that's, also that's right. in the data series, he stresses logical thought. You know, here's a logical way to do this. Where's the, I mean, how illogical is it to think you're going to get every document out of a government? Not a agency, but a government. You know, there was 136 entities targeted in Snow White, and we'll talk about that. And yeah. not only in the United States, but across the world. So if you look at the volume and remember, this is back in the day when data storage wasn't is what it is today. This was a highly paper-driven world. You know, we're talking shed loads of documents, 40-foot trailers full of stuff just on one particular iteration of something Scientology may have done. So, where is? I mean, it's, none of this is grounded in any kind of reality. It's typical Hubbard hyperbole saying, you know, get it all. Well, and then look at how many people he had trying to do this, right? At the end of the day, there were two guys that broke in and that were really, you know, schlepping documents out of the IRS, right? <laughs> yeah, well, they had also engaged in, I mean, there was the national effort. Uh, well, let's get let's get into that. Let's yeah. lead up to that. Yeah. First off, uh, just, to, just to finish off on the actual evaluation itself, Hubbard's handling steps here, here's the plan, okay? To engage in various litigation in all countries affected, so as to expose to view all such derogatory and false reports to engage in further litigation in the countries originating such reports, to exhaust resources in those countries, and then finally to take the nation to the United Nations, that now being possible for an individual and a group, and to the European Commission on Human Rights, meanwhile uprooting and canceling all such files and reports wherever found. So basically, Jeff, exactly what you just said. That was the plan. And I noted here that this business of, of to exhaust resources in those countries. I mean, this is a little fair gameish now. Hubbard's now like, okay, we're going to litigate these guys into you know into oblivion uh, with this program. That was definitely part of, literally, part of the plan. <laughs> it's yeah. written into it to do that. So they have the whole legal strategy that Scientology was already infamous for of over litigation and and drag these guys through court and 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 do so not to make a legal point or precedent maybe they will and maybe that's great but to exhaust their resources to wear them down or in other words to ruin them utterly and now he's taking this fair game policy to a national level yeah, now, though, though just, just one minor comment here is I would uh, caution against over, um, over-reading the term exhausting the resources. That could be, yes, to just hit them with thousands of lawsuits like they did in the case of the IRS. But it could also be just, you know, a calculated fail to embarrass the countries, right? That you work your way up to the Supreme Court in Greece, you get blown out, and then you go to the U.N., and you essentially are trying to draw uh, draw the Greek government through the mud in the UN, and for being big meanies, you know, being branded, you know, human rights meanie by the ECHR, you know, oh, the horror of it. Um, that you know that that that's the strategy is to essentially you know become this this immense victim. Now, 
in if you think of it that way, it's kind of amusing that one of the pieces of the plan in the first part of the sentence is to expose to view all such derogatory and false reports. I can see how that would go, perhaps not as they think, right? To go call up the New York Times and say, I've got 6,000 pages of files from the Moroccan government that is all false and misleading and defamatory. Wouldn't you like to publish an article on how bad the Moroccans are? And then you start going through all these documents about all this weird shit that they pulled and would you still be writing a an article about how bad and evil the Moroccans are? I think you'd probably be writing about what a bunch of loons the Scientologists are. So there's a real opportunity with this, you know, undoubtedly hastily written, you know, memo that there's a real opportunity to create the mother of all PR flaps. Well, yeah, no, no <laughs> understanding of blowback or contingency or anything, right? I mean, it's just like, oh, we're just going to throw this up against the wall and see what sticks. The other thing that's interesting, too, is this ignorance of how international norms work. All right. This is pre-EU. You know, we're, this is before. I mean, the ECC hadn't really even come into into the picture yet. So if you wanted to sue over human right, you go to The Hague. Right. The, you know, you go. I mean, it's a very complicated process. I mean, sure, you can go. You would have to convince the U.N. rapporteur for human rights, uh, you know, the, uh, at, in New York that you had a big enough case or, and have it sponsored by the American ambassador to the U.N. So you're going to tell me that the American ambassador is going to, you know, sponsor a tax cheat to a global forum uh, and argue that their human rights are being violated. I don't think so. Right. So, you right. know, well, let that, alone, and, and that he's sort been of messing thing. with Interpol all this time, right? Who's the global cop? He's been mucking around with Interpol now for probably five years, five, ten years prior to this. He's already a felon on Interpol. So do you think that they're even going to sit there and let him in? He'll be arrested the minute he comes in to testify. It's just ludicrous. Well, that would then that. See, what you're talking about right now is exactly my problem with this, not only this L. Ron Hubbard evaluation, but the data series in general. Uh, just to bring it back to that, right, which is that what you're talking about right now should have been part of the data of the evaluation. evaluation. Look, yeah, absolutely. Right. It should. I mean, there's there is zero attempt in in Scientology to plan for or predict unintended consequences of one's actions uh, on a, on a And when you're doing an evaluation that is quite literally global in scale, you would think that you would take these sorts of things into account. And it was for lack of taking them into account that we will see desperation set in and actions then taken, which were illegal, in order to accomplish the purpose of this, of this program. Because in Scientology, purpose is senior to all other things. That's L. Ron Hubbard saying that. Policy only exists to accomplish a purpose. A plan and a program only exist to accomplish a purpose. So the purpose becomes senior to everything and therefore anything like their ethics system of greatest good for greatest number, anything can be justified when you're thinking that way. Test, the supreme test of a Thetan, L. Ron Hubbard says, the ability, you know, to, to, the ability to make it go right. Oh, right. <laughs> you make it go right, baby. Yeah, and you think for maybe 350 bucks an hour, he could get an international law attorney that would tell him how to go right. <laughs> you know. Well, you would, you would think. <laughs> so, so you know, one of the things to step back and and at this point, is to say is, so 
the confirmation bias of starting off by saying, this is what's happening, and this is therefore all you need to know that generates the, the solution, um, and I have determined it's not my fault, right, with that whole, the whole notion that individual responsibility is not at the senior level, the organization is not never responsible for bad things that happen. Hubbard is never responsible for bad things that happen. It's always somebody else. The, one of the fundamental principles of business these days, and, and probably has been true since forever, but somebody said to me a while ago, a CEO said to me a while ago, well, you know, our management philosophy of like, where do we look for improvements is we're always looking for the stuff we can control. We are not going to waste time on stuff we can't control. So, you know, if you think about this, when you're running a business, unless you, you know, for most people, don't spend a lot of time worrying about the electrical rate that you're spending to light your office. Now, if you're running some incredibly giant factory, maybe it's time to think about cogeneration and solar and all this other stuff. But for most people, you can't control the electrical rate. You can't control what they charge. So don't worry about it. Focus on what you can control. And all of this would have been absolutely uh, controllable if Hubbard had just shut his mouth when he went and sailed into a new country. And if he had not had this grandiose fantasy of trying to take the place over and sell them all of his wonderful tech. If he had just shown up and stuck to the shore story of, hey, we're a group of students at an alternative learning institute and we're seeing the world and we have classes on our ship and then we go out and we learn, you know, from your wonderful country and, you know, they would have said, okay, he's a little strange, but they wouldn't have scratched too deep. So the ultimate controllable thing is Hubbard's own behavior. That's and, right. And his stupidity and arrogance and hubris and whatever else was going on in his head would if he had just dialed it down and cut out the nonsense, they'd probably still be, you know, Miscavige would probably still be on a rusty old piece of crap boat sailing around the Mediterranean somewhere, running Scientology. Exactly. Exactly. Well, okay, so they implemented this program. And this has actually been broken down already, thoroughly, thoroughly documented, uh, because um within what, what by 1977 or 78 or something they uh they'd engaged in years of covert what what ended up being covert operations uh a, a woman named jane kember who was running um the the geo under mary sue uh wrote another guardian's order uh 1361 which which apparently uh i haven't been able to find the the exact wording of the issue but it breaks down busting into and engaging in covert operations against the IRS specifically. And uh, and now a, a point to make on this is that I have spoken with uh, L. Ron Hubbard's messengers and people who worked very closely with L. Ron Hubbard at the highest levels of Scientology management during that time period. And, uh, and more than a couple of them, and every single one of them has said definitively and without reservation that there is no way L. Ron Hubbard did not know every single aspect of what was going on below him with this operation. He wrote the eval. It was his program. He wanted it done, and he wanted it done right as he saw it. So he was going, and he had 
if there was, you know, his whole management system was built on the concept of micromanagement on a weekly basis. So it would be, so it, it, it would be out of character for L. Ron Hubbard to have not been monitoring this on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and also, so that's one axis that supports the, the view that he was absolutely involved. There's also other axes to take uh, that also provide an equally compelling argument. The other is, let's face it, Hubbard was obviously a very toxic and malignant narcissist. And so, of course, he's going to have a great deal of interest in monitoring the progress of this campaign to seek to exact revenge on his enemies. Exactly. And so he's going to not only monitor it for its ultimate success, but he's going to want the thrill of every last little, you know, report on the files that were snuck out of the IRS this week. You know, he's That's not right. going to just wait until the end of the operation and have a memo on his desk that says, you know, mission accomplished. He wants he wants the nitty-gritty. He wants to feel that revenge in every last little detail as it's unfolding. And so right. absolutely, this was undoubtedly a bigger priority for him than how much money he made from, you know, the Oregon, Johannesburg, or Portland, or Phoenix, or whatever. In November 1974, uh, Operation Snow White took an unexpected turn, and I'm reading from the Wikipedia article on this, which actually is quite good. Uh, it says it took an unexpected turn for the Guardian's office when they received word that the IRS would be conducting a meeting on Scientology's tax-exempt status. So that was, could have been good news for the church that the IRS was, you know, wanting to move forward on, on sorting that out. In response, the church sent a spy to bug the room. On the morning of November 1st, the day before the meeting, a Guardian's office agent named Herman broke into the conference room and plugged the device into an electrical outlet. This device, in turn, then transmitted a signal on an FM frequency which was picked up and recorded by Scientologists sitting in a car in the parking lot of the Smithsonian, which faced the office. After the meeting, Herman removed the device and the taped recording of the meeting was sent to Los Angeles. And I am absolutely positive it was transcribed and copy sent directly to L. Ron Hubbard immediately and forthwith. Now, Jeff, what do you what do you think about something like that? Like, like why would they? Why not just ask the IRS to record the meeting? Why well, because go all so the, the, he talked about Hubbard's obsession with wanting to be a spy. It goes back to lying about what he did in World War II. You know, his when we talk about him being an intelligence officer in World War II, he really wasn't. He wasn't really tasked with anything involving, you know, threat analysis or estimations of the capabilities of the Japanese fleet or anything like that. Uh, you know, he's been, Sorry. Wasn't he wasn't he like the mail sensor on one of the ships he served on? And that well, was that, he ended up doing that in New York. But when he was in the Pacific, he was just, uh, you know, I, Jeff Augustine and I were doing some work on just validating his, you know, kind of the Stoller Valen aspect of, you know, what he did in the Pacific. And if you look at his uh, he was kind of what we would call a shitbird in the Marine Corps. He got kicked around a lot because nobody nobody could stand what he was doing. You know, he was a pain in the ass. He wrote this very pejorative report on how he thought things 
should be do you know done and you know was reporting spy activity and all this stuff where there was I mean it's all the typical Hubbard hyperbole. So, but you know he, as we've talked about and I've written about, he still had a fairly decent grasp either autodidactically or you know ancillary or anecdotally being around the intelligence community enough that he kind of knew how it operated. And you know he's written you know he's read on this stuff. So, you know you fast forward to now he's got a lot of money. He can start just like any other billionaire or millionaire. Hey, let's go. You know I want to start really making my fantasies come true. I'm going to help propagate the goals of my organization by you know trade you know being a spy through an intelligence organization. So he sets up the Guardian's office. And again, I've talked about this before. I think there's a key distinction between intelligence gathering, black bag capers, and simple criminality. Okay. Now you can argue that. Uh, a lot of that falls under the purview of clandestine operations or something like that. But here we have supposedly a church that has the Guardian's office, which is an intelligence gathering operation, to do nothing more than dirty tricks, psychological operations, and black bag gigs. So uh, it would be too simple. You know, it, it, he'd rather defer to the covert. You know, you know, this is because, you know, the FBI and the IRS have been infiltrating Scientology, which is known at this time. The you know, there, there were operatives, you know, from government agencies trying to infiltrate Scientology. To him, it's a quid pro quo, even though the government surveillance is done under the legal auspices of warrants and other things. Here, you know, again, this plays back to Hubbard's hubris of Scientology being extrajudicial. I mean, they're above, uh, you know, the, the typical norms of society. So I don't need to bother with asking the IRS. I'll just get the information myself. I'll hire some guy to go in there. And, you know, he just happened to be lucky that the security back in the day was so crap. I mean, there's no way in hell anybody like that could get in and put a bug in there, let alone, you know, these rooms are swept regularly and all this. Uh, you know, it's interesting if you look at the 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 whole context of Snow White was very serendipitous for Scientology because there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, counter surveillance being used by the government. There wasn't a whole movement out there about tax cheats that would actually be threatening IRS employees. So the hardened security of the building, the physical security of the IRS was really poor at the time. So, you know, Heck, anybody could literally walk in after signing and showing a, uh, a driver's license, get access to the IRS headquarters in Washington. So you this is probably not didn't this even need that, to do that. Yeah, I mean, in some instances you don't. I mean, and again, there's the idea. This is you know these people serve the you know they serve the people, so there's access and stuff. You know that whole thing. And I think this brings up another point: is that what Scientology, where their brilliance comes in, is this exploiting the fact that we're a society of laws and people are expected to follow the law. When somebody doesn't, i.e., surveilling, uh, harassing, they play in that area where people aren't expecting that because it's you know if I'm a citizen out there just doing going about my business. I'm not expecting some moron from a church with a Nikon and a lens to be capturing everything I'm doing. I mean, there, we have a presumption of of, of privacy and uh, of civility, if you will, in society. And so if you look at all the things that Scientology has done in this black bag harassment, noisy investigation domain, it's all based on, again, this, I call it this, this presumptive arrogance that they can do this stuff because they don't have any respect for the law or, you know, personal space, for lack of a better term so well, to your point i look at that yeah it was you know pretty slick i mean but so was watergate what could happen there
there. I mean, you know, these are, you know. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't looking at the slick aspect of it so much as the un, completely unnecessary well, aspect yeah. of well, it. Okay, the, why not just, why not just be in touch with the think, IRS guys I mean, and go, I hey, can we record this meeting? Done. It was done just for the sake of being able to do it. I mean, there's no well, rational behind it. <laughs> okay, let's, yeah. let's, let's just stop for one second and just be clear. Was this meeting with the IRS an internal IRS meeting, or was it one where Scientology representatives were attending? It wasn't clear from anything we've said so far to me. Oh, they know that's actually a good point. No, I, I, I think that the, the, the reason that they bugged it is because it was an internal meeting. I get what the motivation was for it, but you know, oh, I misunderstood that. I misunderstood. That's okay. I will just fess up right now that I misunderstood. I thought that this was a meeting with Scientology. No, I think I, it, that doesn't. I don't think that invalidates the. I don't think that invalidates the the bulk of the discussion. I think it's just, uh, you know, yeah. No wonder they wanted to be there to. To discover, right. to get a leg up on what the IRS was thinking, and so right. this is good tradecraft. All right, you know, you're you're being preemptive. You know, you want to know what your enemy's doing. So this and is, this and this was also by this point they had also stolen twenty inches worth of files. Oh yeah. By this or by the next month, they had stacks of stuff because they'd already infiltrated the IRS at this point as well. That's how I, I guess that's how they got word that this meeting was going to be happening in the first place. So maybe this is an appropriate point to kind of step back and look at the difference yeah. between reasoned intelligence gathering and the way that Snow White operated or was, you know, set up. So Perfect. You know, yes, if I please. look at this, if I look at, uh, you know, this, this geo order 732, you know, which is, you know, very simple and has these ideas. Um, in intelligence term, this would be a tasking document, and a tasking document is basically what you start thinking about when you go to create an intelligence plan or a collection plan. And there's a certain level of discretion that goes into what you want to get, right? And this is based on command intent or what have you. So in this case, the commander's Hubbard. Uh, in a military term, it would be an operational commander, what have you. Now, the, the folly in Snow White lies in its scope. And again, you know, Scientology never understands scale, right? They just don't get doing anything within reason or propriety. So we're going to go hoover all this stuff up. Well, okay, so how many operatives do you have? So this goes back to the idea of, you know, requirements, assets, resources, and deterrent priorities. These are all things that a, a reasoned intelligence officer or an analyst looks at as making, you know, a plan on how we want to go collect this stuff. So rather than hoovering up all this stuff, why didn't you know Hubbard sit there and say, okay, I've got these operatives. Now, this is also predicated by, you know, what's the training of these people? Do they have any idea what they should be looking for? This is the other thing. You look at Wolf and and um and uh, what's his name? Uh, Mike uh, uh his name Meisner. Here? Meisner, you look at these guys and I mean, these are just, are these flunkies? Are these just, you know, the, the, the typical Scientology zealot that's just going to go in there and I got to look for this stuff? I mean, was there any rational thought put into, okay, this is what you need to get. This is why we need it. You know, but here's the thing, because if you have an, a collection asset, somebody that's going out and getting stuff, you want them to have some, some notes or, you know, some understanding of why this is important, not just because, well, Hubbard said so, but more importantly, how does it play to the bigger picture? Okay, you know, we're going after the IRS. We need you to look for documents that are specific to Scientology. That's one thing. But we want them to be specific about either L. Ron Hubbard or financial things, not just a memo that may reference Scientology. So I can see these guys going in there and just grabbing all this stuff, let alone how you're going to analyze it when you get it back. 
right? Who's going to sit down and read 30,000 pages of documents on the Scientology side and get any kind of, you know, uh, cogent understanding out of that about what they should do next? I mean, that's the whole point of intelligence gathering. How do you preempt the next step of your, you know, your opponent? Yeah. So uh, this is, you know, the idea of uh, of intelligence gathering versus burglary versus, you know, the thrill of clandestine operations because the founder just happens to have a, a big jag for cloak and dagger stuff. You know, I, and this is this is endemic in Scientology, certainly in the Hubbard years about the whole understanding of the geo and why they existed. It was just to me, it was a manifestation of Hubbard's obsession with you know getting the goods on people yet tactically very brilliant but strategically just buffoonery well and let's let's let me just uh let me just tail on to that for one yep. quick second um i was puttering here with an idea that i flashed on i wanted to do some numbers because that's what i do um and so ultimately a given move like managing to pull off successfully bugging an irs meeting uh that's pretty impressive but yeah. let's look at the cumulative. Uh, let's look at the cumulative effect of those operations. So let's assume that you have a one in a thousand chance of any given episode like that getting uh, getting caught. And I think one in a thousand is very generous. I think the real odds are quite a bit sharper, like maybe one in a hundred. But let's presume one in a thousand chance that any given tactical maneuver that you pull, you get caught. Now, remember, if you get caught red-handed doing something like swiping a file, there's going to be an investigation. And most likely, they're going to eventually get, and especially if they see a couple of funny things happening over, over time, they're going to figure it out. So what are the odds? So if you take, so remember from probability, the probability of something not happening or of, of the probability in this case of getting away with something twice is 0.999 times 0.999. So it's a little less than 0.999. So in other words, the probability of getting away with n things is 0.999 raised to the nth power. So put it to you guys. How many times does Scientology have to pull a caper with a one in a thousand chance of getting caught <laughs> before the odds are 50-50 that they get caught? Twice. I, I have no idea. I don't know math at, at this level in, in any way. I mean, I would say 500 times, but I, I, I don't know. So it's uh, it's you're close, Chris. You actually have to pull a caper. Uh, you have to pull a caper 698 times to have a 58 50 chance of getting caught. Okay. So the thing is that in a program as complicated as what Snow White devolved into, there's thousands of individual steps the odds of getting caught were nearly certain. And in fact, if you say not, point, not, not one in a thousand, but one in a hundred chance of getting caught, you end up with virtual certainty for getting caught after like a hundred moves. And that's not exactly even. what ended up happening. Exactly. And so the thing is that, you know, this, the, the, just looking from a standpoint of actuarial risk, all of this stuff has to go right. In order, in order for the, the IRS to be gaslighted successfully, in other words, the things that people know in their head, there's no evidence for, you have to get every single file. You have to have a 100% success rate, but you can't count on, on being successful. Then you have to replicate that at every government where in the world where 
somebody has collected information about Scientology. The odds of success, this was doomed. It was absolutely doomed. Yep. You know, Very it's worse point. than it is worse than the battle at Gettysburg as far as needless waste of resources for a doomed mission. Yeah. And they they managed to I mean, they infiltrated not just the IRS. I mean, the Coast Guard, uh, you know, various local uh, government agencies, uh, so the, D, the DEA. The if you look at okay, so here's the discretion relative to risk. Okay, so if we're looking at the probability being you know one in you know, six hundred, uh, whatever the factor is, why spread your resources to the point where you're dealing with things that are going to yield basically nothing? The Coast Guard, you know, what is the Coast Guard going to have to do with Scientology? Right? They're probably thinking, well, they have an intelligence organization. But back in the, I mean, to this day, intelligence is still very highly compartmentalized. Back then, the computer system certainly weren't even networked to the point where you could share information that well anyway. So, you know, there's 136 discrete entities that Hubbard's looking at across the world. And I mean, you're looking at stuff like uh, in Austria, Australia. I mean, just uh, it, there's this whole Snow White operating uh, target list or SWAT. It's a subset of everything that they're doing in addition to the United States government. So here's this huge data pool and also this huge collection of people going out at some point that's going to get caught, to, to JP's point. And so what are they getting, really, that's worth it? And more importantly, did they even do any analysis on what they got from the first burglary? Okay, so they've gotten all this data before they go and bug these guys. And then they've also been getting you – know, so they're attacking on multiple fronts. So they get all this stuff from their Freedom of Information requests. Have they done – I mean, it's almost – it's just a gratuitous exercise in collection rather than any – well, kind of, you know, but, assumption. But, but to them, it's not gratuitous. Why? Because in Scientology, you have to take everything literally. And what does it say here? The ideal scene is all false and secret files. Oh, no, I nation. understand that. Yeah, right? and I'm just, I'm just bringing that out. I know you understand that, but I'm just bringing that to the fore, which is the, the man who holds the fate of the universe in his eternal whole track wisdom says all, well, you better get all 136. It's not a question of cost-benefit trade-off. It's, he said all, we're doing all. But here, but here's and the thing. I'll tell you, that is the attitude in the church. And he's not but, following, though, the data series. And he's not following his own setup. Because if you look at these outpoints and all the things in the data that help you narrow down what you're trying to get, you know, you would think that he would have defined what all is, okay? Just like you define the why. You know, so, you know, what is all? All is X, Y, or Z, you know, not just all. You know, right. so this is, again, showing him not following his own stuff. It's, uh, you know, just this, I woke up one morning and, you know what, we need to go pull a caper on the government, so I'm going to write this one-page memo that's going to have you go out and do all this stuff. And that's how this whole thing rolled out, but it rolled out in a very incompetent fashion because these guys did get caught because they didn't know what they were doing. They were not trained. And Hubbard's boasts about being, uh, you know, Mr. Spycraft all fall to pieces in the face of the reality of, of, of this operation that he planned and executed via his wife or otherwise. Uh, and then when it all goes to pieces, he doesn't fess up to, he never apologized. He never said he was wrong. He never, never said, oh, wow, that was, that was really screwed up on my part. Instead, he throws 11, you know, the 11 people who get busted by the FBI under the bus, including his own wife, 
And he goes, well, okay, off you go, because, you know, I'm going to walk away scot-free from this because I didn't do anything wrong. And I think he truly believed that, because that's how out of touch he was with reality. It's funny, too, that it's almost this confidence that he feels he has, and in in tradecraft, he wills onto his underlings, right? You know, I know this stuff, so you guys ought to know this. And yet, you know, if you look at the Paulette Cooper thing, there's some brilliance there. You know, it's like there's individuals, and and this goes back to the idea of, you know, in a competent intelligence organization, everybody has a certain baseline of competency, so you can expect, going back to the point JP made about risk and probability, you're going to have a certain expectation of success based on the quality of the people you're dealing with, relative to the situations that you're putting them into, right? So, you know, here it's very hit and miss. And and without any kind of understanding of contingency or blowback, you know, where we say that, okay, if you get caught, Mr. Meisner or Mr. Wolf or whatever, what's your plan B? Is it, It's not to go open a book and hang out in the library. Maybe you ought to skedaddle down the fire escape or something. You know, you know what's your egress plan? Or in whatever case, maybe you shouldn't have even been there in the first place because the odds were getting higher that you were going to get caught, right? So it's, again, these are the calculations that professionals make. And in the Paulette Cooper thing, you had the brilliance of getting her fingerprint on stuff. I mean, they set that up really well. But then nobody looked, okay, so what's going to happen when this thing goes to trial? What's going to happen? Nothing played out. And there's never, there's never scenarios in Scientology after, you know, the, that are contingent with any kind of planning. They never sit down and say, well, here's X, you know, X, Y, and Z that could happen if this thing goes belly up. Right. Exactly. Because they, because it's all about make it go right. That, that you don't do have to do that because all you have to do is beat on people enough to make it go right. Um, as long as I've got the floor, I should at least mention one thing. There were areas where Hubbard was actually very effective at teaching people what they needed to know to be competent and successful. Um, in speaking with Hannah Whitfield, uh, when she was captain of the Apollo, she'd never been on a boat before, or she had, she'd certainly never been in any capacity of operating one, not even a rowboat. And at 26, she's sailing a 450 foot boat around with a bunch of yahoos that were similarly situated and she's told me the only education she had in seamanship was Hubbard personally how to use the radio how to navigate which of course in those well, days well he had his master hard. mariner ticket if, if memory serves yeah. I mean he was a yeah, very and, accomplished yeah. but, but not only was he you know and now of course he did a lot of intimidating and you know beating on people but as a teacher you know the fact that they didn't manage to sink those things and kill hundreds of people with the lack of experience that they had is actually a pretty notable accomplishment. So I think we have to I think we have to say that, you know, there are times when Hubbard was on, but I think in the case of Snow White, as far as teaching some of the basics of tradecraft, Hubbard may have done okay, but I think where the flaw was was really that his reach far exceeded his grasp. You know, going back to the thing of the mathematics, um, you know, if you have a one in you have a fifty fifty chance of the whole thing blowing up when you do fifty tactical moves at 1% chance of getting caught a piece. You know, it's just insanely dangerous. And to bet the image of your organization and potentially even the existence of the organization, it doesn't matter how good your tradecraft is. And it doesn't matter, you know, you're just, it's just never going to work. Well, the other thing, too, is there was never an understanding of, you know, Donald Rumsfeld said this actually quite well at the beginning of Operation Iraqi Freedom. He said, we, we know that there are things we don't know. 
you know, and Hubbard never acknowledges that because he 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 says that I know everything. Therefore, we will, you know, because of Scientology, we will figure it out. And there are just things that are in that are ephemeral when it comes to intelligence. I, it's just you're dealing with humans at the end of the day, and you know, it's the the capriciousness of human beings are one of the reasons that it's really hard to predict something like the fall of yeah. the the wall in '89 and all these other things. Yeah, and no, so, I actually yeah, exactly. that that's a that Rumsfeld quote is actually very true. And one of the few things I respect him for, it's something, you know, we deal with in Wall Street every day. We talk about not in exactly his terminology, but you where you know what you don't know, you can handle that. Mm-hmm. Where you make a fortune is where you don't know what you don't know. And you can figure that out before somebody else does. Yeah. So right. the guys who figured out the mortgage crisis, which nobody knew what they didn't know about what was going to cause it all to blow up. The guys who figured out before anybody else are all billionaires. The guys who didn't are all toast. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, I think maybe some of Hubbard's apologists would say we're being too hard on him. And he he you know had a, a you know a division of the organization that exists to correct you know when things go wrong. And he and he took these things into account. And you know and then and they hired professionals and this sort of thing. But you know the results sort of speak for themselves. And Hubbard's hubris it, it was obvious. But it's uh, also predicated on what he thinks is wrong, right? Right. You know, it's not what we here in the real world look at, you know, the ethics or the morality of the situation. It's, you know, this is a framework that you're going to have to do. And we've talked about this before. You know, failure is 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 really not a, a, a an acknowledged construct in Scientology. I mean, there's No, just, it is not. It is the same test is to make things go right. And, and a good intelligence and, officers, they learn from failure. I mean, this is because it's uh, it's one of these things. It's not a it's not a zero sum game when it comes to failure because you're going to make guesses that are going to be wrong. But again, it comes down to what's the probability of of correct. You know, this is get as much data as you can. Yeah, but here, exactly. you know, he he he's ignoring the data all the way through the exercise. All right, guys. Well, um, we've discussed this quite a bit, and uh, we're actually kind of running uh, over time as far as how long I wanted to uh, a lot to this. So we're gonna we're gonna wrap up now. I think we've uh, we've definitely gone into a lot of detail about the the, the fallacies and errors and problems with this. And I'll just uh, you know after going over all of this, I keep going back to the beginning. Uh, you know, Hubbard's program, uh, the entire why and plan was flawed from the beginning. Uh, and so, of course, no amount of brilliant spycraft or trade craft or, or infiltration skills were going to be able to make this donkey, you know, ride like a thoroughbred. It just wasn't going to happen. And, of course, they got caught, you know, and, of course, people went to jail because they were, they were breaking the law. They were breaking very serious laws. And, uh, and that's Scientology's, you know, that's part of Scientology's legacy now, and they can't they try on uh, in various places to whitewash this and and repaint it, you know, as a as a whole different thing. And they were the victims. And I think there's this, this article uh, we were talking about on the 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 Stand the League site where they sort of try to, you know, explain away what <laughs> what this whole thing was about. And there's this little tiny note at the bottom. <laughs> and some rogue people, you know, went to jail. <laughs> Because they broke the law doing this, oh. but there's, you know, my favorite was my favorite was how the I think the short story that went around at the time was they were arrested for stealing copier paper. It was like they yes. were, you know, stealing yes. office supplies. The fact that there was important stuff written on the copier paper was irrelevant. It was just, you know, <laughs> right. 
<laughs> they were just hijacking a Staples truck. Exactly. Yeah, so they try to, you know, of... they try to reframe this stuff. And, yeah, and paint I went to prison the for stealing toner. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's pretty. It, it's all pretty silly. Like I said, the Wikipedia article really breaks it down line by line, and it's actually quite thorough and quite good because there's a there's just stacks of of legal documents and things about this. If you really want to dig into all the details, it's all out there. So um, so that you know, the point of this wasn't really to try to expose you know bring anything into into the light newly about this, except to sort of analyze the flaws in Hubbard's thinking and the, and show up the fact that Hubbard had just invented this entire series of data analysis that he claimed was the penultimate in logic and reason and could solve any situation of any kind. I mean, he really made very bold claims for the data series. And yet this is one of the very first examples of Hubbard's application of it in a big, broad, important way for Scientology. And it was the most epic fail failure in Scientology's history. So I think I thought that was worth noting. And I and I'm really appreciate you guys taking the time to give your professional expertise on this because it was very valuable and you, and you actually corrected me on a couple things along the way that I that I was seeing not quite right, which I'm which I appreciate. I always I always appreciate getting a different perspective and a better perspective on things. So what I'd really recommend to the readers is uh, and, and make sure you put the link in the uh, YouTube comments and other places. But um, I would really recommend readers to just take this document that we've been working off of. It's a page and a half long, so it's an easy read. But just get it all in front of you all at one point and think about how this completely stacks the deck and drives people to this inevitable operation. And yet the problem of the goodwill causing him to get shut out of various countries would have been easily solvable through applications of normal sanity. But, but you'll see the way that this is worded and, and you don't have to have been in Scientology to understand how his people would have taken this. But the way that this was worded, it drove them down an inevitably doomed path. And you, could, and you can see it in a page and a half. The, and this exactly. is to, to pop up to still higher level. This is a big problem with cultic beliefs. These people mindlessly are not, you know, but these people assumed they embraced the fact that Hubbard was infallible. And they existed in this culture where he would brook no dissent. This was the word of God, as it were. And so they had no choice to go down the road that was laid out for them in this plan. And a real business, typically you vet an idea. You know, the marketing guy comes up with a new idea for an ad campaign. Occasionally companies will really screw this up. But most of the time, it's been scrubbed pretty thoroughly by a bunch of people going, I don't care if it's the VP's pet project, this is a bad idea. And you get rewarded in a healthy and normal company for saying, maybe we shouldn't do this. Yeah, Snow White was the new Coke of Scientology, right? <laughs> on, on a big scale. The, exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, is that it, it, it re, it's just so vague. I, you know, fill in the blanks. For somebody that was, you know, such an anal detail freak, it's surprisingly circumspect about what he really wants done, considering the ramifications of what's going to go on. My Lord. This is the other thing that I found really interesting in reading that is why, I mean, he could have kept it to a page, but been a lot more detailed or at least scoped it better, as one would say in project management terms. So, again, you know, that paradox. 
Good point. Very good point. Okay, guys. Thank you very All much. Right, for, thank you, Chris. Uh, yep, for that. Um, and we will get this posted up this weekend, and uh, and then we will follow through with uh, uh, the last, uh, at least the last planned episode in this will be uh, a similar analysis of a of David Miscavige's use of the data series more recently uh, in 1996, actually, and how Scientology was was redirected and sort of further derailed in a very very big way by David Miscavige using the data series. So that'll be our next episode in this. So again, thank you very much, guys. Please leave any questions, comments, or feedback, good, bad, or sideways, in the comment section below here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.